Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're glad that you are joining us from wherever you are joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is guided by your questions on the Bible for the most part. That's right, you can send in your questions to us uh, via our multiple online platforms and email address and we will field those questions as we are live with you and delve into the Word to find the answers to those. So really any honest question you have, it could be a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like expounded upon maybe even something you're going through in your own life, you'd like a biblical and scriptural perspective on it, maybe things going on in the world, world events and worldviews, really anything, any honest question, like I said, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible uh, to find the answers to those. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name's Dave Robson. I'm your host today, and we'll be fielding those questions on all those platforms as they come on in. With us today, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. I have a question. Okay. Are you afraid of snakes? Not as much as the next guy. Why? No reason. Well, thank you for that, Sean. <laughs> Here today with us as well, Pastor Peter uh, Martin. That's right. That's your name, right? Peter Martin. Pastor you are Peter right. Ma- I'm right. That's good. You are correct. How are yeah. you doing today? I'm doing all right. Doing good? It's good to see you. Thank yeah. you for making the time, you guys, to be here um, on A Reason for Hope. As I mentioned, A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson, Arizona, but of course you can join us all around the world through the wonders of the internet, and it's very exciting that we get viewers from around the world, even pastors. We have a few uh, regulars who are pastors in Africa and ministering in all parts of the world, so you are very welcome. Uh, Reason for Hope is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona, so a great place to go to be part of the show is calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can follow that Watch Live tab that's right there, and that will take you out to our live page or the direct link is ccftucson.online.church, ccftucson.online.church, or follow the link from the calvarychristianfellowship.com website. And that page you'll see when we're live, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with the username of your choice and be part of the chat there. Um, when we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show and you will see a schedule of upcoming events, not only a reason for hope, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We have a Wednesday evening service and three Sunday morning services as well. So you better see when we'll be live next. But if we're currently live, then you'll see the video. And that's a great way to join us. Of course, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson uh, or Calvary Christian Fellowship to search for that, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you've been blessed by this ministry, don't forget to like and to share around to your friends. We'd love to have a wider reach and reach people with the word. So don't forget to share us around. We'd appreciate that. That's a great way for you to send us in your questions as well, just in the chat function there. I will be monitoring that as we go along. Also, we have an app for your mobile device, whether it's iPhone or Android. Just look for that Calvary Chapel White um, Dove logo right there. Search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can download that to your mobile device and watch us that way. And we also have a channel on Roku, and we have a channel on Apple TV as well. So if you have a smart TV or one of those devices, Look for our channel, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can see all of our live events there. Also, uh, we are on YouTube. Uh, the channel is called A Reason for Hope, so look for A Reason for Hope on YouTube or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. And if you take the time to type that in, then you're a better man than me. Uh, just look for A Reason for Hope and you will find us there. That's a great place to find archived shows if you follow that live tab right there. Anytime we have gone live, it's archived for you. So if you missed the show, if I said something hilarious and you just want to go back and laugh again with your 
family and your children, then that's a great place to go. To, that's what I do. That's, that's what Peter <laughs> does with most of his time, actually. I catch him all the time. <clears throat> um, but yep, YouTube is a great resource for you. And once again, don't forget to like and to subscribe and to share it around. You can take the links and post it on other social media. Um, and if you click that bell, that means that you'll get notified when we are live. So in case you're forgetful like I am, you get a little ding, ding, we are live and you'll be, oh, I'm reminded that Dave is on air saying funny things again and you will join us on there. So a reason for hope on YouTube. Our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, he's not with us today. He's usually with us Monday, Wednesday and Friday for the most part. Uh, he is on Twitter. So if you're a Twitter kind of person, at Scott R4H, you can follow along with him. He posts highlights from the show. He posts commentary on world events uh, from a biblical and prophetic perspective and things like that. Um, so it's very interesting uh, to follow along with him and very informative as well. So Scott Richards, Scott Arthur H on Twitter. Be sure to follow along with him. Uh, this is a relatively newer thing on Rumble. If you're on Rumble, it's another platform that we post uh, archives from our live shows as well. So if you're maybe boycotting one of the other platforms, Rumble is a place for you to go as well. Look for um, A Reason for Hope, Bible Q&A, and you'll find us there. Last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope spelled out at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show and the last show that we did pre-recorded. So you're a day late and a dollar short, I'm afraid. But you can use our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we will get to those questions on our next show. And with all that being said, I think I covered everything. Sean, would you like to pray today? I always ask the other guest, and you get missed out. And I do love it when you pray. So. I'm sure the Lord does too. Yeah, I'm sure he does. All right, Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here and in your word. Pray that we'd be in your spirit as well to convey your truth as well as your heart. Give Peter and I as much truth as grace to share with your people and allow them to take more of you away than when they started. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, it's Thursday already. I can't believe it's these weeks are whipping around. And you usually give a bit of a book recommendation. Did you have one today you wanted to share one? Oh, it's you. Oh, you. <laughs> it's not this guy. Oh, you. <laughs> You read as well? Good job. <laughs> I, I like reading. I still have my eyes. Yes, uh, the book this week will be The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. It's been revised more times than there's probably pages in this thing at this point. But um, it's a very, very good resource if you are not only sharing your faith, but you're in the kind of position where you would be uncomfortable in hours. You'd you know, wonder... Well, if I'm not informed enough about their perspective or if we end up talking past each other because of all the assumptions that we're making about the Bible, how do I know that I'm going to effectively be able to not only understand people who disagree with me, but communicate and deal with their objections effectively? I'd say maybe with two exceptions, this book is probably in that top three of resources that I'd recommend to anyone who's interested in sharing their faith and knows that they're going to come into contact with groups that don't only oppose the gospel of Christ, but also unknowingly are rejecting it as well. Uh, obviously, in giving some examples from the book, that first point I started through is a key one that I think this book does a great job communicating. This is from the first chapter, so you know the introduction goes right to the point. It states, It has been widely observed that men are at liberty to reject Jesus Christ and the Bible as the word of God. They are not at liberty, or they are at liberty to oppose him. They are at liberty to challenge it, 
but they are not at liberty to alter the essential message of the Scriptures, which is the good news that God does care for the lost souls of his children and so loves us and as to send his only Son that we might live through him. So anyone who is passionate about the gospel, anyone who is trying to communicate that news to anyone who will hear it, needs to first understand that no is an acceptable answer, but yes to a different gospel is not. And when dealing with the cults, this book gives a lot of information in understanding where and when that's taken place. Uh, any comments on that, Peter, before we get to any uh, follow-up points? Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Quote's kind of interesting to me. I, I wonder what his reasoning for saying that is. Uh, That's the concluding point of his, the first chapter. So Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if, if he's saying that, like, because obviously he's not saying that someone who rejects God, God accepts that as an answer, but someone who distorts his gospel, God doesn't accept that answer. Obviously, both answers God rejects. <laughs> they're not going to be with him forever. So I, I wonder what distinction he's making. In regards to the cult, the idea is when you're dealing with a cultist as opposed to a non-believer, the, belie- the non-believer at least acknowledges they're separate from God. The cultist claims that he is a part of it but has altered the message. That's what cults ultimately are for and why they need to be confronted. Okay, cool. So his, his distinction is not that God looks more favorably on one than the other. No, it's but from that... our perspective, one's <laughs> yeah. a lot easier to deal with because one says, I don't accept that as true, where it says, I claim this is true, and it's not. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> All right. Um, the second point is the motivation we have in dealing with cults. Obviously, as one who is well-versed in sarcasm and... Uh, oftentimes being more cutting and sharing Isaiah's lamentation, I am a man of unclean lips, we need to obviously check our hearts and not only what we're doing, but why. And in, again, the opening chapters of this book, he makes a careful point to, in explicit language, say, the Christian should be certain that he is tempered with patience, especially, and love, so that the cultist appreciates that such tactics are motivated by one's personal concern for his eternal welfare and not simply to, quote, win the argument, unquote. So obviously you can have all the right answers, but as we prayed before the broadcast, the wrong heart isn't going to get anyone saved. Our job is not to, you know, win every argument. Our opportunity, our privilege is to be a part of the Holy Spirit's work and drawing people to him. And if our answers can remove some of the obstacles and counterfeits they've set up in their own lives against and in opposition to him, all the better. But we need to make sure that we're prepared for the long haul. Peter, you can attest to this and the cultists that you've encountered. I can as well. There's nothing that will test your patience more other than children when you're dealing with someone who is literally saying to your face, I believe what you do and they don't. And you have to explain to them when and where that is the case. And obviously, you don't want to do that to show you're wrong. It's to prove he's right, and I want you to share in that. Anything to note on that point? Yeah, I think that that's just generally great wisdom. Um, You're going to have controversies and disagreements with many people within your life, and if you don't know how to disagree in a way, and this is uh, what me and Sean took quite a long time talking about when we were doing our lessons on rhetoric, which we might get back to at a certain point, but... um, you're going to have disagreements with the people that you love. And and part of the reason why you're going to disagree with them is because you love them. It's because you care about them. And if you believe very fervently that something is the right thing to do and your partner or your kids or your friends 
uh, or even the people you work for disagree with you and they think that a different route or a different path is the best way, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be disagreement. And ideally, when you enter into a conflict, the idea is that I'm going to share my ideas with you. You're going, I'm going to listen to your ideas back to me. And we're going to come to some sort of an agreement. That's the ideal whenever you enter into a conversation. And if you're not tempering that with patience, right? if you're not able to be patient and understanding for where the person's coming from, genuinely trying to understand their perspective before you respond to them, and you just come across as, I just want to get across my point and I want to say what I want to say, and I'm simply listening to you to hear the, the breaks or the pauses in your sentence so I could slip a word in edgewise. If you're doing that, you're not going to get very far. Uh, that's why one of the prime exercises I give to married couples when they can't communicate properly is after one member is done speaking, the other member has to actually respond with a summation of what the person just said to them. So I can't just launch in and say, well, this is what I think. It's Okay, so what you're saying is, and then I try to summarize the other person's point mm. before I give my own. And in apologetics, again, that goes a long way. Um, I, I know that I've had a lot of feedback, and I know Sean has as well. When I take the time to understand someone else's faith, and I'm responding to them not just with mm. quotes from Karm or you know quotes from uh, something else, but I'm actually reading their text to them. And I've shown them, like, I've, I've actually spent time going through your text. I've spent time trying to understand your worldview, it, it does go a long way. People do respect that. They, they do see that as, oh, okay, he, he actually does care or she actually does care about where I'm coming from and why I believe the way that I believe. They're not just you know dumping on my belief system. They've <laughs> taken time to understand it. That's, that's very key. And even in a conversation, you could show that, right? It's, it's very obvious when you're being dismissive, when you're interrupting someone, uh, when you're just condemning them, or when you're making straw men out of all of their points. Uh, it's a very quick way to just turn off a conversation. Yeah, we wouldn't like that in return either. If they say, well, the definition of Christianity is that God killed everyone who doesn't believe in him, and is that just makes him good. No, and um, I'm kind of already forming a negative opinion of any future conversations I have with you. Understand that even someone who doesn't share all of your ideas is still going to approach those ideas with generally the same framework. They have a brain too. Whether or not it's filled with right information or not, the Spirit can use you in that regard. But make sure that you understand, like we talked about in rhetoric, before you speak, listen. That's straight from James. The third point I wanted to point out in the <clears throat> Kingdom of the Cults is it does a good job in setting up not just what to look for in spotting a cultist, but understanding kind of where the landmines are in the worldview they're coming from. Because in cult groups, especially authoritarian or extremely well-organized and involved cult systems, anything from aberrant Christian groups like the shepherding movements and Unitarianism to literal cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, they're going to fall into one of four categories, which is summarized for us here. First and foremost, this is a, from the book, the belief systems of the cults are characterized by closed-mindedness. And that's not an insult. That's true for a lot of people from a lot of different worldviews, even within Christianity. They are not interested in a rational cognitive evaluation of the facts. The organizational structure interprets the facts to the cultists, generally invoking the Bible or its respective founder as the ultimate source of its pronouncements. Such belief systems are in isolation. They never shift to logical consistency. 
they exist in what we might describe as separate compartments in the cultist's mind and are almost incapable, incapable of penetration or disruption if the individual cultist is completely committed to the authority pattern of his organization. So they trust the people that are giving them this information rather than testing and thinking it through for themselves, which is true for most people on most things. You and I are not political experts or commentators, but the people that we've considered worthy of trust hand us information and we form our worldview off of it. Issues that we're more invested in, like our eternal destiny, is something that we take the time to look more into. And if a political situation that directly impacts us comes up, we might double check it to make sure that's what's actually happening and not just hyperbole. The same thing is true in any cultist network. They trust their organization, which in of itself is not a fault, but you need to understand that's actually a tactic and it's also an obstacle. If you disrupt their trust in their organization, you can get to the heart of the matter, whereas if you are dealing with this individual and they keep coming back at you with all these false facts, understand you're not dealing with the individual, you're dealing with what's been handed to them by that organization. It helps basically avoid the landmine of thinking this person's not listening, that they're being malicious, they're intentionally lying to me. They've been lied to. There's a difference in that. And it's also an advantage because you know what to deal with. Oh, so you, where'd you get that from? And they'll say, well, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society gave it to me. Oh, the group that gave 25 false prophecies about the date of Armageddon, that, that group? Well, they never did that. Well, would you like me to show you them? There's the tactic and there's the landmine. Know what you're actually dealing with and why. The second characteristic is noted that, quote, cultic belief systems are characterized by genuine agnosticism, antagonism on a personal level, since the cultist almost always identifies his dislike of the Christian message with the messenger who holds such opposing beliefs. And at the end of the uh, paragraph, it makes this point. The cultist was, is faced with a dilemma if we're doing our job right. How can this person, the Christian, be such an acceptable personality and not share my theology? So that also is an argument in of itself. It's an obstacle and it's an opportunity. Can I pinpoint this person's area of trust in the organization and literally be an argument against it? They say, the Watchtower in particular, and the book of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, they make this point. There are two churches in this world, the Church of the Lamb and the Church of the Devil. They're the Church of the Lamb, obviously, so guess what that fits us in if we disagree with the teachings of the prophets they, their church affirms throughout history. When Jehovah's Witnesses note that we're in apostasy, that we are the, the departed ones, we're the, we're the false teachers of this world, we're portraying a false gospel, we teach awful things like hellfire, and we want to pervert the gospel, and we're in opposition to God's true messenger to this world, what is that going to characterize us in their eyes? Is this malicious, this malignant, this evil force? And yet, hopefully, we come across to them as not what we've been described as to them every Saturday night and Sunday morning. So the point still stands. Be the kind of person that objects to their organization, not just through your arguments and your attitude, but your, own, your mere existence, because that's something they've been trained in. The third, and this one's also interesting, is dealing with our ultimate goal, not just in the nature of the cultist, but emphasizing that all, this is from the book, 
cultic belief systems manifest a type of institutional dogmatism and a pronounced intolerance for any position but their own. Once again, this may sound like, oh, those awful cultists, we do this too. The idea that there is true and there is false, I believe this is true, therefore anything I don't believe is false. That makes a lot more sense when laid out in plain English. But we need to understand if you're combating what someone believes is true, that is likewise an opportunity and an obstacle. If they can question something is true or not, obviously they've also had opportunities and people in their lives who've told them, people who they trust that have clarified to them things that have convinced them this is true. And the undoing of that is not just an exercise up here, but also in here. And Peter, you can attest to this six days a week and twice on Sunday, right? Undoing the work that the enemy has done in their hearts and minds is not going to be an overnight process. In fact, it may take several sleepless nights for them. But the idea is to be a consistent source of truth and a consistent argument against what we've been caricatured as by their organizations. And then last, well, We'll note this for just the sake of time, but the fourth point he makes is isolation, that the only way a cult can thrive is by keeping them from any other material than what is handed to them by people they've chosen unwisely to trust. If we can understand that this is a lot more human than it sounds, then we're going to be able to not only sympathize but rationalize with them things that have been done for them. And if you can get them to take spiritual matters seriously, then you're going to be on the right track. Anything on that before we get into some examples. Uh, no. All right. Uh, again, for the sake of time, uh, some of the organizations that Dr. Walter Martin goes through are Jehovah's Witnesses. In fact, if you're dealing with the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, it is probably the lengthiest section of this book and will do you the most service in being informed about it. Uh, one of my favorites, as far as what's come up the most in conversations, is obviously when Jehovah's Witnesses are arguing with you, they'll say, well, we study in the Greek. If you can target the organization, their founder, and show that it's not as reliable as it makes itself out to be, Walter Martin provides the transcripts in his book of the Russell versus Ross court case where he was literally charged with perjury in claiming that he could translate in the Greek when he couldn't read words off of a page. Uh, what's also very good about this, and I also emphasize this to all of you, Peter, you mentioned this before, the majority of this book isn't just arguing for the cultist positions, it's presenting them in their own words. Uh, the comparisons and doctrines for the Jehovah's Witness section in particular is fantastic, noting side by side how these things have changed over the years, the revisions that have taken place, his claims about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the resurrection, and most importantly, salvation, taken straight from their works. Let God be true. The Watchtower edition of October 1st, 1967 and 83, on and on it goes. But everything is given in their language before being responded to. You hear it from them. The more that you can do that, the better, and this book does you a service in being able to provide it from their sources. Obviously, there's a lot that's being stated about Mormonism and and uh, uh, Muslims even. There's a section on that, which, to its credit, isn't as lengthy as I think it ought to be. But when it comes down to it, he does provide follow-up resources and information that we would all recommend in the footnotes. Uh, he gives 
resources on things that might be more obscure so that you could have your bases covered. And a lot of these themes overlap. He uh, discusses the Baha'i faith, which is more of an Eastern philosophy and religion, Uh, Christian science, which is not as often put in the news as a cult group. He deals with Scientology. He deals with uh, Rajneesh (laughs) and all those other groups. Uh, But what I would, again, commend him for is the fact that he goes through the claims of even these obscure groups point by point and instills in you a habit of reading books that even you wouldn't agree with, which is what we recommended last week's book on, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. The Book of Mormon is also a good resource he provides, not just in providing quotations for it in presenting the history of Mormonism, particularly Jehovah's Witness Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, but also dealing with the corrections, the contradictions, and the errors within the Book of Mormon, a fantastic resource for combating the source of the error, which is what Mormons need to hear more of and what their organization would want to hide from them. There's also their claims about God in noting some vital quotes that you're going to have to hold people to because 99% of the Mormons that you talk to, especially the missionaries, would not have heard one of these things. Yet it provides citation from their sources and stuff that they'll have in their triple, being able to check them out firsthand. If you have this book, you'll be able to clarify those things with them effectively. And also note that he even grants For example, in his section on spiritism, the idea that there's just this ethereal ghost realm out there and that Jesus is just kind of, you know, a perspective on it, but not the authority on the afterlife. When dealing with people who believe in reincarnation, who are not religious but spiritual, he does grant evidences, well-documented evidences that would be in their favor but provides another perspective on it. So he doesn't just dismiss everything he disagrees with as far as the conclusion goes and say, you have no evidence, it's all wrong. Here are some examples where people have argued effectively with evidence for their position, but there's one factor they're leaving out, but there's another uh, possibility they haven't considered. He has an entire section providing evidence upon evidence of positions that go against his belief and then addresses them. The more we get into the habit of doing that, I think you will be well-serviced. And in conclusion, that is why I'd recommend Kingdom of the Cults. It is fantastic for dealing with people who aren't you. (laughs) (laughs) People who aren't you. Very nice. Great. Well, thank you for that, Sean. Um, We do have questions coming in. I know we had an email. Is that something you wanted to? Let's hold off on that because we got a lot of questions coming in. I'll uh, deal with my father later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, very good. Well, in that case, um, we do have questions coming in. A question from Rob here. Hey, Rob, thank you for being part of the show. We're glad you're there. He asks, how skeptical uh, should we be about evolution? I know some Catholics that believe in evolution. Can you believe? And, of course, there are Christians that believe in evolution as well. Uh, Can you believe in natural selection and evolution and still be a born-again Christian? Thanks. Great question, Rob. Great debate. (laughs) It's ongoing too, but yeah, and one that again happens within Christianity. So the elements of evolution that a Christian can believe in and still be orthodox. uh, First of all, just define the term. uh, Evolution means change over time, and so we're saying we believe in evolution. What we could mean is that I believe that God has given the capacity for species to change within themselves. So, for instance, um, there are variations that we see within different, and and species is actually the wrong word, uh, more like the family of a particular group. So if you ever study uh, various 
I guess you would call it like taxonomy. When you look at how animals are classified, there's the kingdom, right? The animal kingdom versus the plant kingdom. Then there's the phylum, then there's the genus, then there's the species. So um, up above species, there's a category that basically houses many different species within it. So dogs, for instance, there's the wolf, there's the chihuahua, there's everything in between. That's all within the dog family. So what we believe is that God has created various types of animals or kinds of animals and that there are changes that can occur that are very vast and they are very uh, directed at survival that can occur on this earth. And it's very observable. It's very obvious. This is what Darwin observed on the Galapagos Islands. He noticed that there was different species of finches with different sized beaks and that at various times and depending on the weather, certain sizes of beaks just uh, fared better. They, they did better. And so he came up with a theory of, well, if that happens within kinds of animals, is it possible that it could have happened between kinds of animals? So instead of just happening between finches, perhaps there was some sort of an ancestor of the finch that wasn't quite a bird. It wasn't in the bird family, but it was something else that turned into what we would understand today as a bird. That was his theory. So he was basing it off of something that is observable, right? The, the change that happens within a kind of animal. And then he was extrapolating out from what he observed a theory, namely that possibly you could jump between kinds of animals. That was the idea. Mm. So as a Christian, you, I think you have to accept that there are changes within kinds of animals. I mean, I, I don't think that there is any argumentation that that doesn't exist, but the question before us is, does that then mean that there can be changes between kinds of animals, right? right? Is it possible that a dog's ancestor was perhaps a hippopotamus or something like that? Is it possible that we all came from the plant, uh, from the plant kingdom, which is what, again, <laughs> evolution would have you believe, right? Is it possible that there could be jumps within kinds or between kinds? That's the question before us. Now, it's possible to be an Orthodox Christian and to believe that that is possible, um, to buy into the, the idea that the earth is really billions of years old, that the universe is even more billions of years old, and that, there, that God has allowed for changes within kinds of animals that to happen gradually over time. Mm. That is possible to believe as an Orthodox Christian. That he orchestrated that. That's right. That yeah. he, he put it into motion and that he allowed for it to happen according to his governance. One thing that's very difficult for a Christian to believe, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's very difficult for a Christian to believe that mankind is a part of that change, that uh, mankind was at one point a uh, part of the animal kingdom and then turned into what we are today. The reason why that's very difficult for us to accept in our Christian doctrine is that very fundamental to our faith is the knowledge that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Mm. Right, that there is something special about the human race, that God has selected us, that God has a relationship with us, that we have intrinsic value within us because of the fact that we were made in the image and likeness of God. We do not give such considerations to different animals, right? We are good stewards of the earth, and it's not like we kill animals willy-nilly. However, we do eat animals, right? So if we're just a higher animal, it's very difficult for you to hold that in your mentality and say, well, it's okay to eat an animal, but it's not okay to eat a human. 
well, if we're simply a higher animal, why isn't it okay yeah. to cannibalize another human yeah. being, right? Should why be is better. that a bad thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, you know, again, animals kill one another all the time. There's uh, conflict that happens. And yes, certain animals eat members of their own species. So uh, it's a very hard sell to say, well, we're just a higher animal, yet we're held to a much higher standard. And God could actually become a man, walk among us, and we have moral and ethical responsibilities before God by which he could send us to hell, and we have a soul and no other animal does. It's really hard to get there from the idea that we descended from apes. Some people try to make the jump. I think it's I think it's a difficult thing. I don't think it's a deal breaker, but I think it's a very difficult thing, which is why a lot of Christians, that including guys like John Lennox, who believe in evolution, they do believe that that doesn't remove special creation, that God did specially create man, in a way that he didn't create the animals and put them kind of on a way that they could evolve oh, into different kinds. A combo. I haven't heard about that. That's yeah. right. So there, there are Christians that do that. It's, it's, it's harder for me to accept uh, the orthodoxy of a Christian who says, no, 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 I believe that men are just descended from apes, but God, that, God guided it. And then it's like, well, which one had the rational soul that has intrinsic value like at what state in that little evolutionary chart that we all yeah. see at school where it's like mm. the ape and then it's like, you know, the Cro-Magnon man and then the Neanderthal and then the caveman and then the guy with a briefcase. And then usually as a joke, it's like, you know, Joe Biden or something or, yeah. you know, like the, <laughs> something like that. Where, back to uh, yeah, computer yeah, with yeah. The, yeah. something like that. You know, it, it's um, it's it's hard for me to accept like, OK, what stage of development mm-hmm. did the soul come in? Right. At what stage in development did God have ethical responsibilities towards that particular animal by which he could send them to hell or accept them into heaven? Yeah. Right. Where did that happen? That's very difficult. Um, that also makes it difficult for the knowledge of the fall. So uh, for Christians who have that kind of dual idea that, well, God did create the animal kingdom, but then he also allowed for mankind, it does <clears throat> allow for a literal fall, right? For a literal Adam and Eve that did actually fall. And that's why original sin exists. The caveat is, is that in order to accept this, you have to accept that death and destruction uh, and disease and things like that were a part of the world prior to the fall of man. Right. That's hard to believe. It's hard to accept because when you look at the Bible and you just read it as it is, it seems very clear in Romans chapter five, it says that death entered through Adam, right? right? So that seems pretty clear to me, but you can rationalize your way around that verse if you want and say, no, 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 death existed before Adam, but the death of men didn't exist before Adam. Mm. Okay. Okay. But I, I don't really see a, a meaningful way to do that, but it, you, you tell yourself what you need to hear. So you can rationalize your way around it. It's difficult, but that those are some basic problems with it theologically. Mm. The main reason why people uh, believe in evolution is because there's an idea that it's a proven or settled fact that it's just been uh, evidentially proven in such a way that you'd have to be ignorant to doubt it. Uh, The problem is is that I disagree with that. I don't think that it has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. I think there is good evidence to support that possibly God did this, but I don't think that it's overwhelmingly good evidence. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of good reasons to doubt the evidence that we're presented with because it presumes a lot of things, right? You have to make a lot of assumptions before you evaluate the evidence that's presented before you. All of which are excluding the existence of God, and of course, interestingly enough, all of the evidences when they put forward, nine times out of ten are predicated on fraud. Right, and uh, you know, when we're going through on Tuesdays, we've been looking at different philosophers, and we talked about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
And even though he was in the 1700s, about 100 years before Darwin, he believed in evolution. So, and uh, he claimed to be a deist. But the, the idea of evolution predates Darwin. There were Christians prior to Darwin that believed in the theory of evolution. What is unacceptable, though, is Darwin's conclusion that because man is descended from an ape, man is not special, right? So Darwin did directly disagree with the concept of the imago dei, that we're made in the image of God, and therefore he also doubted that there was a God. But, uh, you know, uh, he, he doubted that there was anything special about mankind. So there's no such thing in, in this philosophy. There's no such thing as human rights. There's no such thing as man's responsibility to God or man's responsibility to other men. There is no purpose for mankind. There is no telos for our existence. We just exist to propagate our own genes and then we die, right? This is what, Dar uh, this is what Darwin believed. This is what Dawkins today believes mm -hmm. and many other evolutionary scientists. You can't believe that and be a Christian. And most consequentially for future generations, very near future generations, that there are superior races and strains of the human genome that right. would rule over the others. Right. And so the concept of eugenics uh, definitely comes from Darwinian thought, that there are negative strains of humanity, namely races, as Sean mentioned, that are inferior. And therefore, uh, because we're trying to become better and better, it might be okay to get rid of them, right? This is what Margaret Sanger believed. She was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She believed in the forcible sterilization of minorities. Mm. There's a reason why Planned Parenthood is, uh, if you look at Planned Parenthood locations, they're almost always in minority neighborhoods. It's because yeah. that's what she believed. She believed that they should be uh, taken out, essentially. They shouldn't be allowed. The, it was wow. called the Negro Project. Right. Yeah. So even wow. though that, and that was in America. So it's not just Hitler, but, you know, the concept of eugenics does naturally descend from that. Mm. Now, once again, I want to be very careful. It doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you believe in evolution, you have to accept those negative conclusions that we just talked about. It just means that you're going to have to get your theology very stern, right, when you're accepting these things. Why are you accepting that evolution took place to the extent that Darwin argued, right, that the earth really is billions of years old? You, you better have very good reasons for believing that. And you're going to have to have very good reasons of how does this harmonize with what I believe about Jesus? How does this harmonize with what I believe about Scripture? Right? How do I not take this as, okay, well, Everything in the Bible is just vastly symbolic because the flood is symbolic and the fall is symbolic mm -hmm. and God's creation in six days is symbolic, right? It's all symbolic. How do you evaluate the scriptures without going the whole hog and say, well, if I have the liberty to say this is symbolic, who's to say that other things in the Bible aren't symbolic, right? That there are other historical events that the Bible records that maybe didn't happen that way or laws that I can take a little loosely because it was given to a specific people group at a specific time. And that doesn't really apply to me today in my modern and enlightened era, right? It's very difficult not to do that. People yeah. do it. I'm just saying it's very <laughs> difficult not to do it. Yeah. And a lot of times people who start out saying, well, I just kind of accept these basic tenets of evolution, but I still believe in Scripture as the inspired Word of God. They tend to go uh, away from that ideology uh, very fast. doesn't happen to all of them. Like I said, I mentioned some solid Christians in the beginning who do accept evolution as being true, but haven't gone that route, like John Lennox and William Lane Craig. But I would say that that is a danger, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So four things that make or break you as a Christian, your view of who Jesus is, what God is, as far as the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of salvation, and where we get all this information, the authority of Scripture, mm. the affirmation of that one specific brand 
of macroevolution, specifically abiogenesis macroevolution through means of natural selection, one of dozens. You gave like five examples of different ways people look at this concept known as evolution does not call into question any of the first three, which is why we would say, for the most part, people can call themselves brothers and still affirm this. But as you stated, this is just to summarize, fourth starts to get dodgy. And if they compromise on that, not since, if they compromise on that, that's the problem. That's when we'd say you're not a brother. Mm. Yep. So certainly not a hill to die on, right? Could be. Okay, well, Rob, thank you. That's a great question, and we appreciate it. With another one coming. Um, yeah, we have quite a few coming. Um, John asks, is it true uh, that no one really knows the author of the book of Hebrews? Do we know when it was written? Yeah. Do you know who authored that? Yeah, a fantastic question. Um, as far as the majority view throughout history, people have just assumed it was Paul. But because we don't actually have that in writing, we're not going to lie to you and say <laughs> that we know that for certain. There's three general views that's either Paul, it was someone who was dictating or transcribing one of Paul's sermons and kind of, you know, condensed it, or it was Apollos who's mentioned kind of parenthetically in the Church of Corinth's letters. Now, again, there are reasons for all of this, but the reason why, again, apart from the fact that it just says, you know, not to the Hebrews, Paul, these sort of things, but in particular, there's, it just goes right into the topic, why we still include it as part of our Bibles. We aren't told the author, but we do know that it was written, and this is the time frame which is key, within the lifetimes of the apostles and was written by a direct associate, a student of the apostles. So Max first century, we would set it around maybe 70, 60 AD, since it makes no reference to the destruction of the temple. Right, it actually talks about the temple as if it's still standing. Yeah, which was destroyed in 70 AD, right. so we would put it in that time frame, before or around 70 AD. Now, the reason why we would come to that conclusion is because the author of Hebrews himself, or herself, who knows, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 3 of the book, as we reckon it, <clears throat> said this, "'How shall we escape, then, if we neglect so great a salvation?' It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us, including himself in this list, by those who heard. So he is a direct recipient of those who were called apostles, those who were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and says that we were the ones who heard this. So we're noting a one-generation gap, and we're noting through internal historical evidence, the text itself, that it had to have taken place before the destruction of the temple. That's where we would date it from. And we also have references from a lot of the apostles, other followers, Irenaeus and um, one other, Polycarp, for example, who reference the book of Hebrews and treats it as scripture. So those are some of the evidences we look at and say that the book of Hebrews is not only scripture, but was written by someone who fit the credentials. The problem is, and we're very strict about this on the program, we don't have a name so we can't test that person as signs of an apostle. That's why it was usually just a default back to Paul. But the good news is, if you can't judge the one who's speaking, the next best thing, and this is also true of Esther, this is also true of Job, things that we don't have a direct source on, but we can at least judge the content, is that with the exception of the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews spends almost all of its time quoting the Old Testament all, by the way, that have been verified as divine scripture. So when it comes to the content of it, I, I think the last 
summation was 60% of the book of Hebrews is just pure Old Testament quotation. Revelation's 66%, or uh, actually closer to 70% now that I think about it. But it's that close. It's just Old Testament reference, Old Testament reference, and none of the information that contradicts any actual doctrine about the teachings they're in. So time frame, just to recap again, before 70 AD, or at least around that time, because it mentions the temple before it was destroyed, and it's clarifying to Jews at that time in history not to go back to those things which are in fact still there. The second fact is that it references in the text itself being a direct recipient of the information that the first-hand eyewitnesses received from Jesus, so it's within the lifetimes of the apostles. And, of course, given the information therein, we can test its content, its doctrine. It's just, it's, it's basically an appendix of the Old Testament when all is said and done. So that's why we would consider it a reference in Scripture. Um, as far as when people stopped saying it was Paul and started just being honest and saying we don't actually know, it was fairly recently. I want to say maybe early 1900s, maybe even mid-1800s, but it was a very new development when the critical schools of Wellhausen, Tübingen, and others, these big German atheist schools, uh, being critical of the Bible, were putting these challenges forward and saying, but do you actually know that from the text? You have people referencing it, you have this information in it, but do you know it was Paul? And we had to say, no, we don't actually know. So that's the answer. But as far as why we believe it, what its content is, and the dating set in time, those are the reasons. Very good. Anything to add? No. How could you? Why would you? <laughs> uh, John, thanks for that question. hope that helps you out. Appreciate you being part of the show. Um, uh, Dwayne is with us, and he asked a question that we actually answered yesterday, but maybe Sean, if I ask him nicely, might be willing to give a quick one-minute <laughs> recap. Um, the question on, is the third temple made? And if so, does that mean we're doomed to die? So again, if you want to go to the uh, the the recap, the archive. We are, we are doomed to die. We answered, yeah, we are doomed to die. <laughs> I, I can answer that. has to do with the third temple. Yeah. But... Would you mind giving a quick 30-second uh, recap? Is that something you could do? Would okay, you time me. The first temple was made by King Solomon. The second temple was built by Nehemiah and Ezra and renovated by King Herod. It was destroyed in 70 AD. The third temple is not built yet. It will be built by the Antichrist. Some believe that it will be renovated by the Messiah in Allah Ezekiel 40. Others think that Jesus will just nuke it and rebuild it from scratch. That will be the fourth temple. But uh, when people are talking about like first, second, third temple periods, we're not in the third temple period yet because it hasn't been rebuilt. Mm. But we are doomed to die. We man, are man is mortal. <laughs> Regardless of temple and those. <laughs> that, oh. If I read Lord of the Rings, is a ring wraith poem correctly? Nine to mortal men doomed to die. Mm, indeed. That is a truism. Indeed. Well, Dwayne, again, uh, thank you for being part of the show. And if you uh, just catch up on yesterday's show, we did answer that in, in more depth. So that was a wonderful short version as well, Sean. Good job. Mm -hmm. um, question from Kenneth. He asks, as believers, should I view entertainment? And I think that's what you ask, and it was misspelled. At first, I thought it was entitlement. But we believe it's entertainment. As, be as believers, should I view entertainment uh, since the word of God mentions to be holy and walk a narrow path? So what should our view be of? The kind of uh, entertainment we watch and listen to, and yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, yeah, and uh, one that I firmly <laughs> am tackling right now. I, I do like the question. I do like the topic. Uh, one that I think that Christians have gotten wrong more than we've gotten it right. So let me give the two kind of poles of the arguments, and I'm going to give both of them their due because they're both correct about what they affirm, but as most things in Christianity, they're wrong about what they deny. So one of the 
ideas is should we allow for entertainment? And this has to do a lot with our consumption of what we call beauty, right? So is it profitable for me to engage in beauty? Is, is that something that I should do or shouldn't do? So mm. if I were to look at the beauty of nature, is that a good thing? Or is that pulling me away from God? Is that pulling me away from things that would be uh, better suited to my time? If I spend long periods of time listening to music or, uh, you know, looking at uh, different forms of nature or uh, things like that, am I, again, taking myself away from better things that I might be doing? Uh, now, throughout church history, most Christians have said, no, natural beauty is from God, and therefore, by observing it, we're understanding God in greater clarity. So, for instance, in Psalm 19, the psalmist talks about the natural beauty of God, and he says that the heavens declare the glory of God meaning that nature is speaking to us of the beauty and the, uh, the necessity of God. Therefore, by looking at it, by observing it, we are being called forward into the glory of God, and we're understanding more of his nature, right? This is what different theologians have called the book of nature. So God has given us a direct revelation of his, na of his being, namely through Scripture, but he's given us an indirect revelation of his being through nature. And by studying nature, you can understand various things about God. Mm -hmm. However... Since nature has fallen, if all you had was nature, you might come to some false conclusions about God, right? So, uh, for instance, we're going to talk about this guy eventually. One of the sickest people on the planet that has ever lived is a guy named the Marquis de Sade. Uh, we get the word sadism from his name, so I'm not going to get too much into it. Oh, you these. don't mean sick in the modern use yeah. of the... He wasn't sick, man. No. Uh, no, no. Not even no. in the traditional <laughs> sense either. He was uh, about as depraved as you can get. Mm. Even the French government thought he was depraved, which should tell you something. Uh, but th yeah, we get literally get the word sadism from his name. Yikes. He looked at nature and said, well, I see animals eating one another, and I see strong animals preying on weak animals, so why can't I as a strong human prey on weak humans? Mm. That was his uh, observation from nature. So if all you had was nature, you might come to false conclusions about how we should behave. Right. So we need a direct revelation, and that's yeah. what, how God's word works. Well, what about entertainment, human beauty, right? When we actually create through the arts beauty that is reflective of God's beauty, is that useful? Well, what we've talked about in the last couple uh, book reviews is that beauty has a lot of sway over the human heart because what's happening is as I represent nature or things that I view in nature through the arts, whether it's through song or whether it's through painting or whether it's through acting or even speech, I am actually not only giving my uh, representation of what I see, but I'm also giving a representation of what I feel mm. in a direct way where you can experience directly what I'm experiencing. Because of that, the arts have a very strong pull on the human soul and can actually convince you of things emotionally before you understand them intellectually. So because of that, a lot of Christians in the early centuries were pretty firm about this. They said, no, we shouldn't go to the plays. We should not engage with the arts in any way because Rome is a paganistic culture. Yeah. And if we engage with the entertainment of a paganistic culture, we'll become pagans. So they were very firm about that. And they were firm about the idea that we shouldn't create arts of our own because, once again, we're pulling people away from God. They were okay with doing kind of, uh, you'd call, unartistic representations. So uh, chanting, if you go into various more traditional churches, they'll have like chanting and things like that, mm. uh, liturgical chanting, where they'll have in a cadence doctrinal statements like doxologies and stuff like that. Yeah. But they weren't okay with creating works of art, actual beauty 
coming from the church for many different centuries. On the other hand, many Christians uh, started to say, well, if God is represented through the beauty of nature, as a part of nature, we as mankind, as a part of nature, and the only part of nature that can rationalize it, that can understand it, one of the best ways for us to represent our experiences with God is through the arts. That's the best way to do it. We can't do it in words. We have to do it through the arts. Yeah. And so they started to argue this is the best way for us to honor and glorify God. We don't necessarily have to dumb down the arts or to strip them of their beauty. We're not pulling people away from God. By exalting the beauty of God through the creation of our hands, we are exalting God. We are directly glorifying God. Uh, Bach, I quote him a lot because he understood this, I think, better than most. He said that the aim and purpose of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God. And he said after that, any music that doesn't aim for that high goal will only make people stupid and bring them into calamity. Right. So you have wow. a very, yeah, you have a very clear and definitive <clears throat> statement from a Christian saying music can elevate you to God. It can make you right. It can make you holy. It can help harmonize your soul through the harmonies that you hear through your ears. It can help you understand the symmetry of beauty and justice. It can actually elevate you to fight for things higher than yourself. It could humble you. It could decenter you. And it once again calls you forth to understand the greater and higher beauties of God. So once you understand that as a Christian, then you need to evaluate the arts from an objective standpoint. Mm. Every single piece of art that you look at comes through the prism of someone else's soul, right? That's why you look at it. That's why you observe it. That's why you study it is because you're looking at the way someone else is viewing nature. And some of those beliefs will be true. Some of them will be false. But all of them will help you represent not only God's beauty, but also the fallenness of nature. Because we have the divine revelation of God, just like when you're observing the beauty within nature, you can, with a critical eye, observe the beauty coming from man with the same methodology, mm. right? So I could look at it, and just as I'm looking at, you know, let's say a mother hen protecting her young, I say, that's good. That's representative of God's love and his sacrificial care for his children. I should do the same for my children. But if I look at a lion eating the cubs of a neighboring pride in order to take over their land, I shouldn't be like, well, I should do the same thing because it's yeah. in nature, I should do it. No, with a critical eye, I could look at it and say, that's bad. That's a part of the fallenness of mm. what we've introduced into the creation. So I could also evaluate entertainment, which means you have to be very, very critical about what you let into your life. Mm. I think that it's possible for us to look at entertainment that's not necessarily Christian and use it for a higher purpose and allow it to uh, allow it to elevate our souls and bring glory to God. But I think it's equally possible that entertainment could bring you away from God. So point well taken for the Christians that are skeptical of the arts, but you can't throw them out because, again, we are part of God's good creation and right. we're created in a capacity to create alongside him. So we can't throw out man's artistic ability. It's one of the greatest things that God has given us. We need to be able to evaluate them correctly and ask, how is this moving me? How is this inspiring me? What is it teaching me? Right. And uh, do I understand it? Uh, because a lot of Christians don't talk about it, this is, again, something I harp on a lot, is some Christians believe, well, if we just say the arts are bad and we just criticize Hollywood, then people won't be consumed by them. Wrong. Actually, what you've done is you've assumed that people won't consume the arts, but they will anyway, and now you've actually defanged their ability to critically look at the arts. You've completely taken away their capacity to evaluate the arts from an objective standpoint and compare it to the scripture. Mm. You need to be able to train people to observe entertainment correctly and ask themselves, 
How is this moving me? Why is it moving me that way? Right. What is this representing? And how does this conform or deny the existence and glory of God? Yeah, great. We only have a couple of minutes left, but did you have anything to... No, we got uh, two minutes, two questions. I think we can deal with them. You can do it, man. <laughs> I believe in you. All right, what two questions are you... Did you have in mind? Because I may have a different list to you. Well, given the uh, list you have available for me, Talon and Tia's questions, I think we can deal with. Okay. Oh, you do have the, yeah, you have the same list, don't you? Well, let's uh, Tia's question. What is a cult? Yeah, it's uh, generally we summarize it with the acronym C L U T. It's a group that would be. Did I say something different? C U L T. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the idea that. <laughs> Uh, what they say about Christ, their understanding of Scripture, their emphasis on legalism, and who they tell you to trust are in conflict or away from the gospel. So what do they say about Christ? Is he the God-man, the second member of the Trinity, God himself come to this world to be the sacrifice for our sins, our atonement, and the revelation of God to mankind, or is he something less? The understanding of Scripture, do you need the Bible to have all the fullness of the understanding of life and godliness, or do you need their material too in order to properly understand Scripture? That's a red flag. Legalism, do you get to heaven by grace through faith alone, or is it after all you can do, quoting Second Nephi 25? And then, of course, uh, trust. Do they tell you to trust? Like we talked about with the uh, quote from Walter Martin's book, do they keep you in isolation and say, trust us to give you that word? Or like we emphasize regularly on the broadcast, look this up. Go to the scriptures, know why you believe it and what it is ultimately saying. The Spirit can lead you into all truth. And then, of course, uh, Talon's question about Noah taking seven kinds of every animal, not just two. Yeah, uh, seven of the clean animals because he performed a sacrifice afterwards. If he sacrificed one of the clean animals, there wouldn't be any more clean animals. So uh, he took seven of the clean animals, two of only the unclean ones, and one didn't sacrifice. All right, good job. Thank you for being part of the broadcast. We'll see you again same time tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.